0: Sunday, January 1, 2023. Happy New Year and welcome to the 45th episode of The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. I'm Anthony Davis. You can also subscribe to my 5-Minute News daily briefing podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining us today is a man who worked as a speechwriter to George W. Bush, uh, the author of 10 books, including Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy and he's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome, David Fromm. Thank you. Uh, David, I read pretty much everything that you write, uh, certainly in The Atlantic. Um, You've written 10 books. Uh, I haven't read all of them, but I'm certainly au fait with them. And I'm always fascinated in people who have started out as traditional conservatives and, and Republicans, who in recent years have had to kind of question their own allegiance. And obviously, a lot of People like yourself have done that and written books about it. Um, just tell us very quickly a little bit about Trumpocalypse and uh, or Trump apocalypse and yes. how that came about. Um,
1: I wrote two books about Donald Trump. The first was called Trumpocracy, and it was published in 2018. Um, and it tried to set the stage for what I anticipated was uh, to come. Um, Trumpocalypse was written two years later, and it tried to take the measure of both the damage that had been done, and also to offer some ideas as to how to um, put us on a better on a better path. Uh, I did not anticipate um, quite the um, the degree of chaos that there would be. I mean, the the idea of a president actually plotting the violent overthrow of the election he just lost. Um, you know i i dreaded many things about donald trump and i thought he was capable of just about anything i didn't i did think he would try to hold on to office i did not anticipate that he would try to do so by violence um, but that's what we got
0: there's a few uh, big donald trump stories this week uh, six years of trump's tax returns were made public by the congressional committee on friday which uh, ends that kind of long-running effort to uh, break precedent and keep them secret we've also seen uh, george santos uh, he's a, um, a new congressman for the Republican Party. Many top Republicans are remaining silent over him fabricating large swathes of his biography. So we'll, we'll take a look at those stories in a moment. But first, I just want to ask you about something that you um, wrote, uh, an article in The Atlantic in July 2021. Uh, and the headline was, there's a word for what Trumpism is becoming. And uh, then the graphic kind of wrote fascism, but dropped a couple of the letters. Yes. I, I do think, I, I mean, I used to refer to it as the F word that nobody says. Why, how is it that, you know, Americans especially are so inclined as to not want to go there and make those connections and those references to fascism as certainly as we know it in Europe? Well,
1: um, I think in Europe it's easier because in Europe you can see there have been many varieties of fascism. So, um, to Americans, it it means Hitler and the Nazis. Um, And one of the things I kept saying through the early Trump years is there are many stops on the train line of BAD before you get to Hitler Station. Um, So, uh, what Europeans understand is there are fascist movements in Romania, there are fascist movements in Bulgaria, uh, there are fascist movements in France, there was a fascist movement in Great Britain, as a matter of fact. Um, and some were politically very successful, some less successful, some more violent, some less violent, some more anti-Semitic, some less anti-Semitic. Um, it, was, it wasn't exactly a coherent way of thinking about the world, but it was a coherent approach to politics. And at, uh, especially since Donald Trump left office, the, the refusal to accept the legitimacy of constitutional processes, the cult of violence, the cult of the leader, um, the cult, uh, and the isolation of the leader from any kind of system or institution, I mean, at bottom, one of the things that drives fascism is the um, impatience with the idea that there should be rules and regulations and institutions, and they should bind everybody, even the charismatic leader. That that and Donald Trump became someone who became more and more impatient with that, but also taught big parts of um, his supporters to feel that same way. And so we have got a cult following him um, now. A lot of it is kind of farcical, like what happened in Arizona with this sad loser Governor Kerry Lake who won't accept the outcome. But you can see how if that election in Arizona had been somewhat closer, if her defeat had been less overwhelmingly apparent than it was, then someone who said, I refuse to accept it. I regard violence as a legitimate means or an acceptable means of settling disputes. This begins to begin to look like, not like national socialism in Germany in the 1930s, but a lot like things that happened in Romania, in Bulgaria, in uh, in France, in Britain, around that same time.
0: Fascism has actually been used by the right and is now being thrown at the left, isn't it? Referring to Joe Biden as a fascist. Yeah. Do you think that there's enough? I hate to kind of say there's not enough intellect in the debate that happens on the street. But, you know, in the same way that they refer to Bernie Sanders as a, as a communist without really understanding communism or how it plays out in various countries. Well, is this a problem that these, these titles are actually uh, so misunderstood that they, they have no value? I think there's a the problem, which is as... Uh,
1: mercifully, people live longer and longer than they used to do, which is a great thing. I say that as someone who's passed his 60th birthday. But it means that a lot of the people who are talking about politics are talking about a world that doesn't exist and are not keeping up with the world that does exist. And so when you talk to older people, people like myself, many of us are carrying a mental map of politics that is 30, 40, and 50 years out of date. And so a lot of these terms like right and left um, that were very understandable in the politics of the 1970s and 80s, what do they mean? So um, when you, you talk about people, I mean, fascism in the 1930s was a movement that attracted people, both from what had been the right and what had been the left. Mussolini started as a socialist and ended as a a fascist. Um, uh, After after the um, Soviets took over Germany, they found the best recruits to their new East German communist state were people who had been Nazis before. And anyone who takes part in online debates can can see this. That many of Bernie Sanders himself, by the way, I do not include in this. He is an an I disagree with all of his policy choices, but he is an exemplary small D Democrat. He's a supporter of Ukraine. Um, He is uh, he is a socialist, but he is a truly democratic socialist.
0: But But he's no he's not an extremist as he is painted, and and isn't that when the word radical and extreme used to describe people who are liberal by any other definition is false. It's out of place. It's well, just used I, I, as as drama. I, just to make this point, that um, the point is, are you someone who
1: is committed to institutions and, and rules, or are you someone who wants to break them? What we've seen is many of the people around Bernie Sanders, not him, but many of his supporters in 2016, have ended up as Trumpists in all but name, especially the, the people on social media, because they were attracted to Bernie Sanders because they had, this is a guy who's going to smash the Democratic Party. This is the guy who's going to smash Hillary Clinton. This is a guy, by the way, who's going to stand up for men against that castrating monster, Hillary Clinton. And so those emotions, um, a lot of people approach politics quite emotionally. Those emotions then put Many of the people who are most passionate about Bernie Sanders in 2015, 2016, you can see them now as a, a, on what most people would call the far right. But have they really changed so much? Or is it that we're trying to plot a map that doesn't make sense? And I think a lot of us, I mean, you know, uh, I voted for Mitt Romney against uh, Barack Obama in 2012. And I, um, you know, I've been a Republican and a conservative all my political life. And, and if, you, if you were to give me a hundred question policy questionnaire... How, what should we do about, you know, is rent control a good idea? Uh, how should we treat capital gains? Um, you know, uh, better to have freer trade or more, pro- I'd probably get, you know, a score in the 80s or 90s on the conservative answer. Um, but I find that in today's crisis, in today's crisis, with the questions that are most urgent now, I have a lot more in common with the people who disagree with me on those 80 to 90 questions, but who agree on how we are going to answer them. Um, and who also agree if you lose in court, that's it. It's over. The court you know the once the courts speak, you can't pick up a gun.
0: Isn't that the problem though, that these definitions um and the tribalism associated with them often don't match the actual kind of thinking of those people that that join. I mean, the fascism argument is is pretty simple as I see it, because there are people waving swastika flags. Who are doing their marches in the name of Donald Trump, so I mean it 's not difficult to make that connection, but it 's not happening on the other side, and yet Biden is being criticized for being corrupt and all of these things where there is ne- not necessarily any evidence, but it just plays well you know it, it's everyone 's doing very well out of this whole toing and fro but we've been living
1: i think probably as a result of the financial crisis of two thousand and eight eight, nine, which was then followed in Europe immediately by the terrible Euro crisis of 2009 and ten. So two two, two of the worst economic events since the Great Depression, one on our side of the Atlantic, one on the other, happening in close succession, and uh, that hit a generation of young people very hard, displaced a generation of young men, made it hard for uh, young families, for young men and women to find each other, to get married, to build homes, and disoriented a lot of people. So since those years we have been living through a big um, crisis about whether democratic institutions, the kind that people on both sides of the Atlantic, and in Japan and in Taiwan, have built since World War II, whether those still meet the needs of the modern world. And um, that's the argument that has been going on. And so whatever you think about rent control and capital gains and uh, free trade, um, well, free trade's part of this discussion a little bit more, but whatever you think about those, those things, the big issues of the 1970s and 1980s, um, we've been having this huge fundamental argument about how people should live together. Uh, and the people who, and so it's not surprising that a Biden and a Romney find themselves with today's emergency, more or less in the same place. And, you know, um, and a Trump and a Corbin find themselves in the same place. Um, and it's, it's not as, it's not so surprising that, um, you know, a lot of people come from, you know, weird netherworlds that don't seem that political. I mean, you and I are talking in the weekend when um, Romanian authorities have just arrested an online influencer who made his living pimping videos of...
0: Yeah. Um, a former kickboxer.
1: allegedly. Yeah. So how, that per- how does a person like that become a darling of what used to be the socially conservative right? And yet he has done. Um, and...
0: But a, re- a reality TV show host became the president with no previous experience. Yeah. It's, the sa- it's the same. It's the same example. So we're, we're, so we're watching the categories get scrambled. Now here's the good news,
1: which is, <laughs> and I think as you and I speak at the end of 2022, the democracy is getting the upper hand. Uh, I, I think I can feel the energy and uh, the heroic the heroism on the battlefield in Ukraine is part of the story. Other things are part of the story too. But you can visibly feel that um, this anti-democratic movement of the extremes, of the far left, of the far right, this new thing that came into such prominence after 2010 is beginning to recede. That's the way it looks right now. If that is right, this is a very hopeful moment.
0: You talk about the economics of this. I blame everything on wages, and I have done for years. Looking at the economic graph and seeing how wages across the world really, but if we certainly use Europe and the US as an example, uh, around the kind of, about 35 years ago, they stopped going up in line with inflation. So the cost of living got higher and greater and and wages didn't rise in accordance with that. And it has meant, I mean, it, it means that in the UK, certainly people have been living under austerity now for over a decade with, with uh, conservative governments and have got used to living with poverty wages. It's less pronounced in the U.S. here, but I recognize that it is the reason that people butt heads all the time, you know, because you can you have to work two or three jobs to make the, enough money to live, and no one can afford a house.
1: Well, um, e- economics is surely a big part of the story, and, and wages are an important part of economics. I think there's some other things that are going on too. Um, I think one of the um, uh, things that has been very important has been um, the discrepancy between women's educational attainment and men's. Um, women are continuing to younger women are getting better and better educated. Uh, young men are stalling uh, are stalling out their educational growth is actually going into reverse and so um, there there is this educational gap between men and women, which leads to an income gap which leads to marriages not being being formed. And so I think um, you know se- sexual mistrust, Um, The division of these two groups that obviously need to to find each other, um, that's a big part of the story. Um, I think, you know, global migration is an important part of the story. Um, Global migration is both a tremendous resource for the societies that use it well, but it can also be a source of tremendous stress on, on, on societies.
0: And a stress on politics in the U.S. because, of course, migration is used as a weapon and it's only going to get worse with climate change and everything else. There is. You know, people are going to have to get used to welcoming new groups into their countries, right?
1: Um, maybe there will be more migration. Maybe there will be less. Um, it, it's it's very hard for me to predict. I mean, there there are also factors that are going to reduce immigration, like the aging of the population all over the world. Um, you know that that's happening in Central America as much as it's happening in North America. And people who are forty are less likely to move than people who are twenty. And there are a lot more forty year olds everywhere uh, than, than there used to be. Um, But migration is always a source of strain on societies. And we saw this the most, we had some very dramatic examples of this in 2015, 2016, where you had both this huge migration of Syrian refugees um, into, uh, and and refugees from elsewhere in the Middle East and, and West Asia into Europe. And we also had this huge surge of uh, unaccompanied minors from Central America into the United States in, in 2014 to 2016. And I don't think – and that, those were precipitating events for both the election of Donald Trump and, and the Brexit referendum. Um, and uh, so I think it's going to be necessary to find ways to manage it. I don't think you tell people – I don't think you tell people in a democratic society – this is coming to you whether you like it or not, because they will then say, well, if I don't like it, I will vote for somebody who promises to fix it. So uh, with, with migration, with all of these things, we have, the whole point of constitutional systems is to say, uh, your government can actually be in control of this, and you can have more and you can have less. And if you make a democratic choice, you don't have to find some, some authoritarian wacko to implement the changes you want. You, you vote for it, you'll, you'll get it. Um, And so one of the things I kept writing during the early phases of the migration debate is that if liberals won't control borders and insist that only fascists will control borders, then voters will say, okay, then get us some of these fascists because the borders have to be controlled. Um, It's it's a little bit like what happened on the crime issue in the 1960s and 70s when liberal politicians said there was nothing that can be done about crime. And so voters turned, that's the beginning of the great conservative surge. Voters said, let's find somebody who will do something about crime.
0: And crime is very much a flashpoint, isn't it? Because conservatives, I hate to use the phrase conservatives, because I think, and I want to talk to you because you've written about this, about how, you know, conservatism has has changed so drastically. But but crime is, you know, crime exists in every metropolis. It exists in every city around the world. But here in the US, it is very much used as collateral when it comes to electioneering. Um, but no one seems to really offer any kind of direct uh, policy on how they're going to deal with it. And we've certainly heard that from Republicans. And, and in fact, they maybe made a mistake in the midterms in, in using crime as that flashpoint because it, it, it didn't work out for them.
1: Well, look, crime is a tremendously important issue. Um, America is a violent country and there, is a lot of, uh, and there is a lot of violence here and people are frightened by it very reasonably. People also use the phrase crime to mean the kind of urban disorder. You live in Los Angeles, you see it. I mean, it it is not normal to have hundreds and thousands of people sleeping on tents in the streets. Um, It's not normal to have defecation in the streets. And by the way, why is it
0: not normal, though? Because it's happening in every city. It didn't used to happen. This is a very new thing. Um, But that goes back to that goes back to the economics and the graph and people not being able to afford a house. So I would argue it is normal. No, it, it really doesn't seem to be economically, look, we, we've lived through
1: this before. Between 19, about 1992 and about 2012, we saw the steepest reduction of crime in American history. In fact, by the early 2010s, probably there was less crime in the United States than at any time since it was an organized society. Um, and so one of the things that um, makes it hard, when, when politicians poo-poo the crime issue, people can, within memory, say it used to be better. Uh, it used to be better in New York. It used to be better in Los Angeles. And when I say used to, I mean like half a dozen years ago. We're not talking
0: about, you know, when I was a child. Which yeah, because the went, 1970s and 80s in New York was not a place where you wanted to walk at so, night. But but, but um,
1: I, I remember um, this is a, some. my wife and I had lived in New York in the early 1990s, late 80s, early 90s, like the worst days of the crack epidemic. And it was, it was really a... Um, it was it was pretty tough, and then we moved to Washington. And we, um, remember, we came back to New York. Uh, it, um, well, we often came back to New York, but we we're in, on this particular story. We we're staying in New York for the 2004 Republican Convention, and we we're staying at a hotel right up right opposite the Port Authority Bus Terminal, which was in the 90s. Sorry, in the 80s, the ground zero for the heroin trade. Yeah. And and our two little, and our, we had three children, our two older children who were at that point you know, under both under 10 years old. Asked at 11 o'clock at night if they could walk across the street to the ice cream store on the other side of uh, 31st Street and get an ice cream by themselves. And you looked out the window and said, Well, the biggest danger to you here is being trampled by all the hordes of happy tourists. I mean, it is, you could do that. You you could not do, you would not have allowed your children to do that in 1991, and you would not allow your children to do it today, but you would have in 2004. Um, You would have in 2012. You would have in 2014. Mm. Um, so this is a real uh, challenge. Um, it it didn't work for the Republicans because, as you say, as an issue in twenty uh, twenty two, because it was so obviously cynical and not driven by anything. Yeah. Um, and they also didn't have, you know, what do you do? What
0: are you going to do to get the tent cities off the streets? We have to get the tent cities off the streets. Um, but why, why has homelessness and crime been connected? Because you know, yes, of course, there is a knock on effect, but homelessness is. More of a economic issue and an addiction issue. You know, it's it's more connected to yeah. to, to the uh, the, people, the drug crisis.
1: People want to feel safe in their streets, and they want to yeah. feel that. that um, and they want, they want to. And when they, they and they don't want you to tell them what if, 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 when you say, "Look, that homeless person," I don't think he's probably going to murder you. Uh, the mother pushing the stroller says, "I don't. I, I care if he spits on me when that happens." Um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I was just talking, uh, one of my children was just this very day um, in, in on the subway in New York, and uh, there was a man walked through the car ranting and raving, and she, when she stepped away from him, he spat at the back of her head. Now, is her life in danger? No. Should she have to live that way? No. And if, if a politician says, well, you need to
0: live that way, or you, that's the punishment because the economy did that, that politician isn't going to keep his job or her job. So but it's not a crime issue. It's a, that that incident is a mental health issue, which no one, s- one seems to be making an offer, an offering to solve either. Well, it's a it's a public say, uh,
1: You you start with, with the question is when you solve it, what is yeah. your what is the goal to which you are working? And, and, this is, and this is by the way, this is normal politics that we're talking about. But if you don't give normal politics, doesn't get hold of this abnormal politics will um, is your goal that. You know, we have to solve mental health, and that which is a huge problem. And you say, "You know what? We're going to start. We're going to start." There's no spitting on the subway, yeah. we don't know how we're going to get there. That's the end state. Um, there are going to be no tents parked on, uh, uh, in public parks. Just, that's the end state. And then we're going to—it's going to be hard, and we are have to do some experimenting. We're going to try different things, but it is not—we are not going to live with this anymore. And uh, and that's something that Democratic politicians, small, small d, really need to commit themselves to because it's not going to continue. It's not going to be acceptable. One of the little blitz, uh, um, blips in the 22 election was while there was no red wave nationwide, there was a red wave in the state of New York. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do uh, with this feeling of the politicians not being in control. So they need to be in control.
0: How did it get to the point where... Donald Trump was able to kind of weaponize politicians as baddies. It wasn't just Donald Trump. It's been going on for years. But but to, for the government to be evil and, you know, here am I, a non-political person, and so I'm the one to to be your savior. I mean, yeah. other politicians have done that over the years before, but Donald Trump really kind of galvanized that kind of anti-government sentiment. Yeah. And he, he did very well with that. Well, I... I...
1: Um, I've spent a lot of my life in the company of politicians, and I think we all need to learn a little more respect for the very difficult job that they have to do. Uh, um, politicians, what, did, what, what do they do for a living? Politicians are
0: – Politicians <laughs> it's a rhetorical
1: are, question because
0: okay, I can't it's help rhetorical it.
1: rhetorical because people think they do – not, and people all think you'll get somebody who, who, you know, who's built a successful coffee company. And he'll say, "I can do it. Doesn't look that hard." And he, and then he 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 walks, and he just he bangs, he breaks his nose on the glass door instantly because he has no idea of how hard it is. Politicians are specialists in the in the uh, mobilization of consent. Uh, that you have millions, tens of millions in the United States, hundreds of millions of people, and you have to get you know a plurality of them or a majority of the voters uh, to agree that something to do a certain uh, take things in a certain way. And how do you Persuade them to do that. Um, there are all kinds of, of arts of persuasion and mobilization and identification. And it's really difficult, difficult work. And it, and when it's not done, um, when it's not done, the results are pretty bad. Um, so, uh, you know, I think one of, the, uh, one of the surprises for a lot of people was how effective Joe Biden has been at the job of, of president. Uh, and with, you know, I, one of the articles you were kind enough to, to reference, I wrote an article at the end of 2021, I, when you look at how weak his hand was, 50 senators, uh, not 51, 50 out of 100. So Kamala Harris there to cast the tie-breaking vote. A very scanty margin in the House of Representatives. Um, weak p- presence in the states in, the 20, in, in 21 and 22. And yet he got um, an extraordinary amount of things passed. And then in t- he went on to an even better year in 2022 with one of the most remarkable um, midterm elections. For the party of the president ever. Mm. And even more remarkable at, at the state level. Um, you know, Biden lost, uh, I think, nine, the Democrats lost nine seats in the House. They gained a net seat in the Senate. They picked up two governorships. All that is amazing enough.
0: Yeah, it's, it's unprecedented.
1: Well, they're, the, pre- yeah, yeah, but what, what I'm about to tell you is is unprecedented, or not since Franklin Roosevelt's time, which is, well, there are 99 state legislatures, and most of them are up uh, for re election in one way or another in, in this midterm. And normally the party of the president loses a lot of state legislatures. Biden did not lose a one. Um, Mm. And the first time that's happened since 1934. In fact, not only that, he gained four chambers. He gained a chamber in Minnesota, I forget, uh, I think one in Pennsylvania, and I think two in Michigan, if I remember right. So that's on, and he's, he's changed the state map. And a lot, of, and and they defeated all of these Trumpy election deniers. I think there's one some got reelected in, in the Dakotas and in Wyoming, which are not close states. But in the close states, the election deniers were all defeated, especially in crucial states like Wisconsin and Arizona. Um, so it was a
0: remarkable achievement, and a lot of that- so Republicans must have voted for Democrat. I mean, that that is what must have happened. So I'm very interested to ask you. Ignoring the MAGA Republicans and all the the kind of fascist arguments and the screaming and shouting, there, there must be an increasing number of Republicans who look at the things that Biden has passed, because a lot of the infrastructure stuff, I mean, people like Ron DeSantis in Florida are taking credit for it, you know, and talking about, oh, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Well, yeah, hang on, that all came from federal money. So there must be Republicans who recognize that Biden, even though he's not the guy they would like to vote for, is actually delivering results for them at home on the ground.
1: I think he said something even more remarkable. There are a lot of people who don't like what he's doing, who are voting for him anyway. And and, and a a real test case of this is what happened in the state of Arizona. So Arizona and um, the Republicans picked this Trumpy election denialist governor. Uh, and they picked a uh, Trumpy election denialist attorney general, and they picked a Trumpy election denialist secretary of state. And all and of It was quite people, the lineup in Arizona, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it yeah. really
0: was the, yeah.
1: They, they nominated a normal Republican for state treasure. Money doesn't grow on trees, you know, how is this going to be paid for is what I'd like to be asked that kind of green eye shade, yeah. you know, fiscally responsible, none. He won. He mm. won all the other Republicans lost. And so what, what, I take away from that is there are a lot of people in Arizona who said, money doesn't grow on trees, you know, and where I don't know how all the spending is going to be paid for. But if the choice is spending more than I think is prudent or overturning our constitutional system, I'm going to go with the people who respect our constitutional system and spend more than I think is prudent. Not because I'm won over to their arguments about how much to spend, but because there are things that are more important. We can always fix the spending later.
0: There is, for me, there's this kind of overhang in the US, which is the fact that most of the money seems to go to the military. There's a kind of socialist system, you know, where you employ people and you put them to work and you give them somewhere to live. And You know, $700 billion is being spent on, on the military and it's signed off in both houses and people seem to be quite comfortable with that. So there is this kind of, we don't really have this in the UK, you know, putting the military on a pedestal in this way, whereas in the US it's very powerful, despite the fact that successive presidents now have removed these military um, people from theatres of war, you know, bringing people back home. So to boast about having the biggest military, but actually not be at war or even in a peacekeeping way uh, is is a bit of a contradiction in itself. How do you qualify as a I, I presume you're like a fiscal conservative, right? Is that how you would describe yourself?
1: Um, let me just, just say something about how, how um, because there's a bit of an illusion in the military budget. Because uh, we, Congress, uh, we have, uh, the way we spend money is we have appropriations. That is, this is money where Congress actually says the amount we are going to spend on Project X is going to be Y amount. And then we have what are called entitlements. And entitlements are so called because Congress does not decide how much will be spent. Congress says everyone who is over age 65, or now over age 67, gets this much a month. Uh, however, you know, however many, and we don't know what that number is going to be. It depends on how many people are alive who are over age 65 or age 67. And we so we set a, a set of qualifications that entitle you to the money. Um, now that in those entitlements, that's two thirds of federal spending. Now, there's no vote on those uh, because they, ju- they just trundle along. So when you see that the military is the largest thing that Congress votes to spend money on, remember, Congress does not vote every year on Social Security. It doesn't vote on Medicare. It doesn't vote on Medicaid. Um, it votes every five years on farms. It votes every four years, I think, on the highways. Um, so the military is a very spectacular, eye-catching budget item because Congress votes on it every year and also because um, we talk a lot of things. Into the military budget that aren't really military spending um, because the military has to be passed. Uh, But I think we are learning from um, this Ukraine war that is um, as expensive and often inefficient as the military is, the thing that is even more expensive is not having it when you need it. And uh, we are going to be needing to spend, we are going to have to, I mean my view is if there's anything in a western arsenal that the Ukrainians could use and it's in a western arsenal, Somebody is blundered because it should already have been out of the arsenal on its way to Ukraine where they need it. Uh, but we're going to have to restock all of those things. And one of the things we're learning from the Ukraine war is that um, you know, we, we've been thinking since the end of the Cold War that what a war looks like is um, you know, uh, low-intensity operations. Of, of a kind that even Iraq was a, uh, compared to Ukraine, it was a low intensity, now you spend only a certain amount of ammunition, you need only a certain amount of rockets, you only need a certain number of personnel. The idea that you could be in a life or death struggle that goes on for a long time in which you're blowing up thousands of rockets and tens of thousands of artillery shells every day, that's something we have not seen in a long time. And we're going to have to re-engineer a lot of our military thinking imagine that because a crisis in korea a crisis in east asia a crisis between japan and taiwan sorry china and taiwan that it could look more like ukraine than it looks like what we have seen from the end of the cold war until ukraine
0: but it's going to change now that there's a republican congress because there are many republicans especially quite prominent republicans who are on the wrong team i mean they are actually you know they're on putin's side they don't want to spend money on Ukraine, and, and so this has been mud- muddied, hasn't it? This kind of argument as to where Ukraine should sit in terms of being a, an ally—it's yeah. been muddied by Republicans, and then, of course, there's the more extreme arm that are outright yeah. shouting that Putin is not the enemy.
1: Right. Well, um, it needs Ukraine is not an ally uh, because if uh, if you're an ally, that's that's like the platinum card of security. If you're an ally. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get you have American soldiers there, and so they're they're a partner. They're they're um, but you know they're a country that the United States supports, and Britain has supported, and and, and the whole NATO alliance has supported. Uh, they're not quite they're not quite a full ally. They're 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 fighting their own war. It needs to be said with a lot of help, but they're fighting their own war, um, and it has cut at very strange angles through a lot of uh, the political system. And it's, and it's really split, as you say, it's split the Republican Party. I mean, Senator McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, has been rock solid on Ukraine, yeah. um, absolutely rock solid. Probably a majority of Republicans in the House um, are solid, but a, a significant minority is not. And because the leader of the Republicans in the House, Kevin McCarthy, is, both has a precarious personal position and second, just isn't a strong will to figure as McConnell, the leader in the Senate, that, that, that there is there's a more of a question mark. Um, and so uh, Senator, uh, sorry, uh, Kevin McCarthy will one day uh, say, uh, we can't issue Ukraine a blank check. And the next day he'll come out and he's wearing a yellow and, and blue Ukrainian flag, right. uh, pocket square and necktie to show that his heart yeah. is with the Ukrainians.
0: Yeah. And, and it's the, these contradictions that uh, fascinate me so much about American politics. It's how, you know, politicians may have said one thing. I always think about Lindsey Graham, you know, denouncing Donald Trump after January 6th and then going and having a cup of tea with him. And then a week later being best friends and his greatest supporter that that even though it's on videotape, you know, that the proof that they've denounced or they've walked away or they've said, okay, I'm done, as he said, you know, enough is enough That, that they can turn on a dime. No. Is that kind of exclusive to U.S. politics? Is the show business more important than the the archive?
1: Um, one of the uh, P- President Biden said um, somebody asked, um, asked. I'm now going to forget the context where he said this, but I, I thought this was this was so right and true, and something a politician needs to keep ever uppermost in the brain. I, I know he was taking he was taking a question from schoolchildren, and and and. And the kid, what do I need to think about if I want to go into politics? And he had, like, a, something A, something B. And the third thing was, you need to know what is the thing you will, ne- you will lose an election rather than <laughs> right. do. Right. Um, and that's, uh, that's one of the things. That, that the great tragedy of the Republican Party in, in the Trump years was if a lot of Republicans had said back in 2016, you know what, I can't follow this guy. You know, I, I'm, uh, we're splitting, we're splitting the party. We're, we're throwing away this election. And Hillary Clinton will win and we don't like her, but it's not going to be the end of the world. And anyway, it'll be the third Obama term, and that means she's, she's done for in 2020. We'll pick up Congress in 2018. We'll pick up the presidency in 2020. Four years, it's a long history. Um, and, and we'll send a lesson to um, uh, the radicals in the party that they cannot take this party hostage like this. We will, we will, the majority of us will stand down and let the election be lost. We would be on a very different place donald trump's one his power against the regular party was he always knew that he would blow he would blow up the party if they if unless he got his way, but they would not do the same uh-huh. and so that's right right now um that the big donors the elected officials, probably most people who are professional Republicans want to see Trump gone, but they're ter- but he's declared for president in two thousand twenty four and they are frightened that unless he is mollified and managed, unless he wins maybe, uh, that he will split the party. And they're not willing to do the same to him. If 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 they had made it clear to him, we will split the party against you. We will accept the loss to keep you out of office. Um, he would have been, um, he would never have been president in the first place and the whole world would look different.
0: Do you, do you think the Republicans could have taken advantage of that first impeachment? And in, instead of, uh, setting him free in the Senate if they'd have actually said okay you did try and extort Zelensky and therefore you know this is an impeachment and therefore we did have to find a replacement I mean they could have saved the Republican Party then
1: we could have saved a lot of trouble I I think something people don't quite reckon with enough is the two impeachments are the same story um, Trump uh, the, the Trump correctly read the 2018 result um, when the Democrats had this wave election in the House of Representatives, he realized then um, that he was on, he was on his way to lose in 2020. The, the people have people say things like, uh, "If it weren't for COVID, if it weren't for this," Trump was Trump knew he was on his way to defeat.
0: And it's the thing he hates the most is the prospect of losing. That is more palpable to him than right. anything else. Right? Because at
1: some deep level, he knows he is indeed a loser. He knows his father was a better businessman than he yeah. was, and he, yeah, he know yeah, he's yeah. gone bankrupt all this time. And things just it's never- the
0: inner child.
1: Yeah, so he's got this inner lack. Um, So he began working then on, I'm not going to win a fair and square election. So plan A, so he developed a series of crooked plans to win the election anyway. Plan A was to extort the Ukrainian state to fabricate a scandal against uh, Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, digging Um, up dirt on Biden and Hunter Biden. Or inventing it. Yeah, inventing
1: it. And Zelensky, Zelensky was the newly elected president. And the reason... and Trump targeted him because Zelensky, I mean, was also you know, he was another TV star, The Showman. He was, yeah, he was a comedian. He was regarded as generally, and he we he was a Russian speaker. He was not regarded as a Ukrainian super patriot. He was, in fact, Putin thought that Zelensky might be sympathetic to him. Zelensky spoke Russian as a natural first language. You had to learn Ukrainian in adult life. He had had shows successfully on Russian t- TV. Um, you know, he uh, he had kept company with some, um, you know uh rather scruffy russian language oligarchs uh so there, there was the, the the putinists had some hope in zelensky and trump and, and they somehow that was communicated to trump and he said okay i'm going to squeeze this guy and i'm going to get out of him what i want and that was our first indication that, what of what zelensky was really made of uh, yeah. and so well, zelensky, he had a
0: moral he had a moral compass which yeah. trump didn't notice and putin wasn't expecting either and he was also
1: quite wily because he didn't say no to trump he said i need more time I need to right. do more work on this. I've got a. I've got a process of my. He just played for time and time and time and time, and and eventually the story exploded, and Zelensky never had to do it. But having failed at Plan A, extort Zelensky. Trump then said, "Okay, now I need my Plan B." And uh, Plan Plan B was um, first to try to tamper with the election by making it difficult for people to vote by mail in the middle of a COVID epidemic, and then second, this crazy scheme to falsify to yeah. and and he and that had a plan B one and plan B two. The first plan is to do it by fraud, by pressing people like uh, the Georgia Secretary of State to find him the votes he needed, and right. then when Raffin all else okay. failed, when all else failed, he turned to an outright act of violence. But it's right. the same through line, and 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 so when the, Repu- the Republicans, one of the things when they kick themselves, opportunities missed, that it wasn't that by letting him go. In, with the first impeachment, that you then said, okay, he's learned his lesson, as one of them unfortunately said. he The lesson he learned is, I need I, I need to keep going. And in fact, I can get away with it. No one will stop me. And I can't be stopped until we actually have the spectacle of a president raising a mob against the capital of the United States.
0: So with this, with the fact that it's so blatant that Trump is uh, you know, a lifelong criminal, fraud is in his DNA. We're, we're starting to see it with the announcement of the of the tax returns and, and how obviously he doesn't have the wealth that he claimed to and having a bank account in China and ver- various things, right? But that aside, here is a guy who, if he denied anything or said it was a hoax or said it was a witch hunt, and I'm talking about the Mueller report, I'm talking about even the Steele dossier, which in most part was genuine. I mean, a lot of it was used by Robert Mueller in putting together this this document if Trump says it's bad, it probably means it's true. And so with all of this rhetoric, it must be obvious to Republicans, even MAGA Republicans, but certainly fiscal conservatives and traditional conservatives, that the entire Trump presidency was a grift and was a stain on conservative politics. And yet he still managed to find 70 million votes. So, So how does this how do you qualify this as somebody who has a, you know, Republican background and, and your your support hasn't wavered? I mean, those four, you could call it six years because he's still going. I mean, that is a very historically we will look back on this period as being one of the, the darkest periods in American history. Surely.
1: Well, yes, but also. This, this is a story I tell a lot. Do, do you remember the movie? I'm keen Apollo. for the caveat here, David. Remember the movie Apollo Thirteen? Sure. Uh, and and it's just they've got the astronauts lost in space and they they have the scene where they bring all these gears and parts everything that's on the ship they 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 dump into a conference room and say this is what the astronauts have got you've got to find a solution to get them home and somebody this is the greatest catastrophe in NASA's history somebody says and in the, and then another character in the script says this is our finest hour right and uh i everything you say i'm not going to deny any but it's also true that 2014 was the lowest turnout in a midterm election since World War II. 2018 was the highest turnout since World War I. Um people But still only 67% though. It's, it's not enough, is it? It 2018 what so um in tw- the last time we had turnout in a non-presidential year uh like 2018 was before the First World War. And then we had a higher turnout as a share of the electorate, but remember women couldn't vote? Yeah. Cross of the south. Uh, uh, blacks were disenfranchised. People 18 to 21, of course, couldn't vote. So what you had is, when you look at the percentage of people, it's men and women. It's people of all races. It's 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and 20-year-olds, as well as 21-year-olds. The share of the American population that turned out in 2018, that was the largest Democratic non-presidential event in U.S. history. Um, they came out in the, in unprecedented commitment, and they stood in queues. Um, and then they came back in 2020. And then they came back again in 2021. And they came back to to turn the Senate Democratic. And then, then they came back in 2022. Um, and people have been involved and committed. And everyone, as you know from your experience, everyone who's involved in public affairs, there's a level of commitment and intensity in the audiences that you had never yeah, seen. Yeah, it's
0: the, the engagement now, whereas prior to Trump, it was apathy for politics. And I, I, so I think there's something with,
1: that... It may be that it, what we needed Trump to make us understand that something that we took for granted
0: was in danger, was precious and in danger. Who, who needed Trump? Was it Americans? I think was it conservatives and Republicans? Because Democrats didn't need Trump and Democrats, many of whom who, public outspoken ones, including yourself, I would say, predicted the danger of Trump. I mean, even Hillary Clinton predicted it practically word for word in her speech, she knew what was coming she knew what was coming but but um i
1: i i think the society the society as a whole did not mobilize and um and you can point to lots of people who did but the society as a whole did not but the society as a whole has done since then and so um and i think we have we have we've had and, and this is not a uniquely american thing we've seen this across the the developed world i mean that that's one of the things that's so important about you know, the Ukraine wars has made us realize again why all these institutions our grandparents built um, in the dozen years after World War II. NATO, the World Trade Organization, uh, all of these things, all these habits, um, you know, your your ability to get on a plane and travel around the world and not have a, you know, not need any kind of and many, many, many countries exchange each other's visas and use a credit card. And if there's a dispute with the merchant, it's adjudicated. Um, you know, there's no gunboats that are needed to to settle your hotel bill. Um, all of that—that that was all built, um, and and we, of a certain age, inherited it and enjoyed it and maybe neglected it. Um, and then it began to crumble as things that are neglected do. And now we have to build it back. And uh, maybe it would have been better to. Be aware, but maybe that's not human nature to appreciate things all the time. Maybe you need the crisis. It's like in any kind of relationship. Crises can be good. Uh, They can force us to understand what we have and why it's important and why we need to protect it and maintain it.
0: But it's not being built back by Republicans. And if I can quote you from January 2018, you said, I've had enough conservatives tell me I'm not a conservative. I think conservatism, it's really obsolete. Conservatism stopped describing the world we live in. It stopped having answers to the problems of the world that we live in. It's devolved into anti-leftism, tribal antipathy. Yeah. That's also- just just ex- explain that.
1: Well, I, um, you know, I, I grew up in um, the conservative movement, which... Co- coale- which well, had been around for a long time, but it really coalesced in the 1970s into a big movement. And it had always been a small marginal force. Uh, but in the 1970s, for a lot of, I wrote a book about the 1970s for a lot of reasons that I described in that book. Uh, it coalesced into a really powerful and ultimately dominant force in American politics. And in 1978, in 1988, in 1998, even in 2008, if you said, I'm a conservative, that really was an intelligible thing. In American politics, people knew what that meant, and they knew what you wouldn't do. They knew what what, what kind of person—not only what kind of person you were, but what kind of person you. And know. some
0: of those people said, "But I'm socially liberal as well." Then, yeah, they might, but ah
1: uh, uh, conservative. There was a broad. I mean, look, these—we're talking about a huge country. There, lot not everyone is the same. Um, yeah. The differences of emphasis, so, but ah uh, conservative um, in the age of Trump, it began to be meaningless to say I'm a uh, conservative, um, mm. and. So I, that article, I, I really stopped saying that. I, I still am a, I'm still conservative. I'm still a, as we discovered in our discussion, but what do we do about um, public order? Uh, you know, um, you know, but, but that, that idea of that there was a conservative movement um, that overlapped with the Republican party that um, stood for more or less the same things over a long period of time. I think that's really done. And when, um, and, and after all, why shouldn't it be done? You know, uh, when you you look back on history, see the issues of the eighteen forties are not the issues of the eighteen eighties, and so the political map changes. And the issues of the nineteen twenties are not the issues of the nineteen sixties, and so the political map changes. Uh, why should why should we assume that the issues of the twenty twenties are going to be the same as the issues of the nineteen eighties? Why should the, we should have the same map? Maybe we have new problems. Uh, We need new answers. And, And as we develop new answers, we're going to have new coalitions around those
0: answers. Isn't there a fundamental miscommunication, though? It's almost like people want to be tribal. They want to say, I'm a Republican, and others are proud Democrats, socialists, progressives, whatever you choose to call them. But fundamentally, people really want the same thing. And if we were to take the main issues, the border crisis, and immigration, both parties want to deal with that. They don't want to see swathes of people because it's a humanitarian crisis now and nobody wants that on either side. And Biden has actually done a lot more at the southern border than Republicans would ever give him credit for, including have Mexico pay for the technology to deal with it. So, and and then just to kind of run the list, you know, education I've always thought is a huge one on both sides. And, and, and so I would suggest that both parties, I mean, apart from the CRT garbage, you know, there's probably a lot of common ground when it comes to education. Um, Why is it that there is this kind of innate tribalism and this mudslinging when actually the major issues that would make America better or even arguably great again are shared by both parties equally?
1: Well, I think you only get people to share when you're at a very high level of generality. I mean, implicit in what you're saying here is a feeling that Disagreement is, is something upsetting or unnatural. Disagre- disagreement is natural. Uh, disagreement is, how, is, is natural. It's probably even good because not But everyone, even
0: for the sake of disagreement? Because that's what yeah, I'm seeing.
1: But, but what democracy is, is a way to manage the disagreements we have in society. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned education. Let me. So uh, a, an issue that has um, erupted across, across your state, California— um, has been many st- uh, cities and uh, counties operate magnet programs for students who test very well for academic gifts on standardized tests. And they create special programs or sometimes even, as in San Francisco, special high schools for such people. Should such schools exist, there are benefits, there are consequences. Should we have, sh- uh, which, is, which is more important, the benefits or the consequences? People are going to disagree. That's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, then we say, we, they argue, they try to convince each other. Maybe they succeed. Possibly they fail. And at the end of the failure, they say, okay, there's only one way to settle this. Let's raise hands and have a count. And if whoever has more hands, we do it their way. Um, that's, uh, and, then, and then a lot of people raise hands for because they are moved by some ad rather than because they have a deep view. And then to pay for the ad, you have to raise money. And then, and then you get everything that makes politics a little more circus-like. But what it comes down
0: to is that to say we are, we are going to have disagreements and we're going to settle them by raising hands. That's civil But the point I want to get to is this idea of owning the libs at whatever cost and that actually the, the, the details of the policy are irrelevant, even to the extent that people would vote for something that they don't really believe in just because they want to win one over those damn liberals. Well, you know, it's like liberalism is a dirty word in America, whereas owning, where I'm from in Europe, it's just normal. The owning the libs comes about when actually there isn't a thing.
1: You're, you know, uh, when, when you're arguing about whether or not we should have these magnet schools or not, with the good points and the bad points of a magnet school, um, you know, you're actually trying to win. You care about having the magnet school or you care about having one system for everybody. Um, so you don't... Gain anything for yourself by humiliating somebody on the other side because mm-hmm. you know you um, unless because you, you've got a goal preserve the school abolish the school it's when you don't have that goal when when, when the contest is it uh, is an end in itself and that's that is a special a special consequence of how politics works on social media it's a special consequence of having someone who is as idea free as Donald Trump who's about his own ego who's about um, yeah, so these ethnic and tribal and sexual vendettas. But I don't think we should be afraid. We should be afraid to, to acknowledge that they're they're meaningful. Like on the border, there are meaningful differences. Um, uh, that you know, is it um, you know millions of people are trying to enter the United States. What should we do about that? Um, no one thinks everyone should be allowed in. Nobody thinks nobody should be allowed in. But there are big differences between people who think it should be 500,000 a year, a million a year, two million a year, or that the border should, you know, or that any asylum seeker who shows
0: up should be admitted. So they have to solve that problem. They have, And that's what poli- the political process is for. But, but there are uh, additional factors involved, and that is xenophobia and racism and these kind of cultural effects that have been whipped up by the likes of Donald Trump, referring to Mexicans as criminals and rapists. I mean, that does not help when any party is trying to deal with immigration.
1: But, but your question shows, you have a strong point of view. You, you know, it, it betrays, your question betrays your commitment, which is great. Um, you have... Well,
0: because I'm, I'm an immigrant, yeah. and oh, I'm. I guess as, a, as an immigrant, I recognize the plight of because I really don't think Americans in the main, understand asylum. You know, that this concept of asylum seeking is not the same as illegal immigration. And yet again, that's something that's been muddied, I think purposely by, by Republicans.
1: Um, I, I, I was born in Canada. I'm a naturalized U S citizen. Um, uh, and in fact, I come from a, uh, my, my mother was an American who's a naturalized Canadian citizen. So I come from a family of sort of like double backflipping. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, the question of, of how the asylum system should work, I, I won't take because we're nearing the end of our time. I mean, I'm going to dis- I, I, I would disagree with you in your interpretation of it. But the, po- the point is not that that is something unnatural or deviant or scary or upsetting. It's that, what, that the, the, the theme of, of all my work is we need to have ways to regulate and ad- ad- adjudicate and decide those disagreements uh, that are productive. Um, and allow people, that, and that above all, avoid violence. You know, and and sometimes people just can just ignore each other. You know, uh, for hundreds of years, uh, there was this question: Well, how are Protestants and Catholics possibly going to live together? We're all going to have to be one thing, or we're all going to have to be the other thing, and we're going to have to, and and you'll have to use violence to settle it one way or the other. And then we decide, you know what? It turns out they could, um, and and the idea that people would go to war over that seems. Seems absurd, but it doesn't seem so absurd that people would go to war over being Sunni or Shiite, because that right. still does happen. Um, and uh, you know, so there, there are th- that we need these systems to build the um, ways to peacefully settle important social disagreements, whatever the social disagreements have to be, and not to wish away the social disagreements. But not- that
0: does require a, a, a more intellectual level of debate and argument, and in the public domain, in the town square. It is not done with any depth. It is it is mudslinging and it's done with language that is inappropriate when you're talking about human life. And and again, you know, maybe the, the Trump presidency devalued the United States' ability to have that conversation because, you know, I don't... I, maybe we just need new leadership. I mean, maybe that's the thing on all sides. I mean, I think Hakeem Jeffries is a very good... A new addition to this, because the conversation is changing, and 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 Pelosi represented the past in many ways. And the other hand, people may surprise you. And I've had I have a deep faith
1: that there that not everybody, but most people, most of the time, are more open to reason than you might think. And I ultimately, I mean, um, it's near the end. Of it. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a personal story that sort of has always have been shape my thinking on this. So as you mentioned in the introduction, I was a writer for um, President Bush and I was a big supporter of the Iraq War. Um, Very controversial thing, now quite unpopular. Um, I was in London on the day that the British Parliament uh, voted on what was in effect the war resolution. It was a giant demonstration. Um, I was in the demonstration. (laughs) (laughs) It just shows where we sat on that. Uh, So I'd been in the House of Commons watching the debate and then I hastily changed I, I wanted to see the demonstration too, so I hastily changed clothes out of, to be something a little bit more inconspicuous, and I, I was in I was in the um, Trafalgar Square watching watching the events and um, looking pretty anonymous. But somebody recognized me, and um, uh, and a crowd and pointed me out to other people, and a crowd began to form. And there were some pretty hot headed people in that crowd, and and the mood got really intense. Um, they were probably. I was probably surrounded by maybe 40, 50, maybe even more people. I I mean, not a huge audience, but, uh, and, and uh, there there was a lot of shouting and it was a noisy day. And, and they were sort of surrounding me and, and I was backed up against the fountain and uh, uh, I had to think about what to do. And so what what finally happened was I I stood on the lip of the fountain and I said to the people, I'll tell you what, you know, yes, I'm from, and yes, I did work for President Bush. And yes, I do support the war. Um, I'm going to stay here for exactly half an hour. And I will answer any question you want to ask me about President Bush, about Prime Minister Blair, about the war. To the best of my ability, you're not going to disagree, but I will give you the best answer I can. And the first question was like a bullet. It was so angry. And I dealt with it as best I could. And the second question was the same. Each question after that, I noticed the temperature began. It was I was giving them honest answers, the, or at least the most honest answer I could give. Um, and the temperature gradually Came down, and uh, and then at the end of the half hour, someone said, "Can you stay for ten more minutes?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll stay for ten more minutes." And then I timed the ten more minutes. At the end of the ten minutes, the group parted um, and let me go. And one man, of the last man I passed, gave me his phone number and said, "If you're ever in Manchester, <laughs> uh, come have a beer." And in fact, I I did. Um, and uh, and you uh, know, I don't. I didn't change any minds. I didn't change any minds, um, but.
0: But there is room. There is room for that level of of debate, and and the town square in the U.S., especially with the change of ownership of Twitter, because Twitter, was, of course, one of the great modern town squares in a way, has has changed significantly. One thing, and just to finish, one thing we haven't mentioned, which really is a is a is a, a lens on this whole political conversation, is the media and how American media has been able to miscommunicate a lot of these subjects to voters and people are going to the ballot box with false information because the media is skewed politically. And again, this is the reason why I started Five Minute News, because I moved to the US and I was like, well, who knows what to trust? how How does America recover from this discourse with the where, where there's no regulation of the media. And if anything, it's becoming more partisan and more divided.
1: Well, we're in a revolutionary time where, excuse me, I, my, I've got a friend who wants to be part of this uh, conversation. <laughs> okay. uh, we're in a revolutionary time where we're all the media. I mean, if you have one of these, you have more real time video communication power than Walter Cronkite or Eric Severide or any of those giants of the past ever had. You can talk instantly to planet. Um, in with video with audio, um, so we're all we're all the media, and we uh, and in fact statements about the media become all of them are true because um, all of them describe somebody, and so the challenge for all of us is we are both cons- inevitably both consumers and every time we retweet retweet distributors and every time we compose a, sort of a producers of of media content, and so we're all going to have to learn to be to adjust to this new world. Um, and it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it, obviously it's not been an easy transition and a lot, not everyone is responsible about it. But um, we're going to, I, I have to believe we're going to learn how to cope with this. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I'm a big, the, the, the first and original conservative Edmund Burke said, the individual is foolish, the
0: species is wise. And I hope that's true. I have to believe that's true. I'm going to believe it's true. I believe in instinct, and I do think that people are born good, and we we have a kind of natural instinct, and and that's why when I look at characters like Carrie Lake, I kind of know that it's all showmanship, and I know that deep down she knows that she's playing. You know, this, this is unless she's completely insane, that that actually she spotted an opportunity, as Trump spotted an opportunity to make a lot of money, to put the Trump name out there, and he didn't even want to be the president, right?
1: There are bad people,
0: too. <laughs> yeah, there are bad people. Are they born bad? It's, we don't have time for the nature and nurture conversation. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's just very interesting how this landscape of, you know, who wants to be a politician in the first place, the kind of person that is drawn to that job. And there has to be a certain ego and, and level of confidence. And some people are wholly unsuitable for it. Yeah, but some people
1: who do that work, they just admit it's, it's so hard. And they're so important. Um, And maybe if we respected them more, we would attract. I mean, partly on them. Maybe if they behave better, we'd respect them more. But maybe if we respected the job more, um, we might attract the the kind of people we we say we want.
0: Okay, David Fromm, thank you very much for joining the weekend. Uh, An absolute pleasure. I'm Anthony Davis. Please subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast which drops every morning so you can hear me tell you what's happening around the world while you make your coffee. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Time.